Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, this will be our only episode this week. We're not going to have a question of the week episode. Um, I've simply had a crazy week with other stuff going on, so I haven't had time to, to pull that together. So this is our news roundup episode and it's the only episode you're going to get from us this week. Uh, partly it's been a quiet week, so we were just talking through the news that we want to cover. This is what we're actually going to cover, but it, it has been a, a week somewhat devoid of major news. The only really big announcement, I think, was um, the new Surface Pro from Microsoft. We're going to cover that first. Uh, the Eco announced big layoffs and a, a retrenching in the U.S., so we'll talk about that second. Uh, thirdly, there was a report that uh, the Google Assistant and, and therefore the Google Home device will be monetizing through a combination of e-commerce and ads, which wasn't broadly covered this week, but came directly from Google executives responsible for these areas. And so we thought that was worth talking about. And then fourthly, news that Apple News has hired its first editor-in-chief, a former New York Magazine uh, executive editor. So those are the four uh, news items that we're going to cover, each of them probably pretty quickly, um, but kicking off with this new Surface Pro from Microsoft. Um, the notable thing here was it was, well, several notable things, I guess, but firstly, it was announced in Shanghai. It was not announced in the U.S. as pretty much all their other Surface announcements that have been made in the U.S., uh, so that was interesting. Made in China, reflection of uh, the increasing importance of China to uh, Microsoft. There was also a, a separate announcement at the same time from Microsoft about a custom version of Windows 10 for the Chinese government. It's something that they've been uh, working on for a long time. The Chinese government's basically refused to use uh, the sort of standard versions of Windows for some time now. And so Microsoft worked with them to build in their custom encryption and various other things. So this isn't a custom version of Windows for China, it's specifically for the Chinese government, and I think that, that point is worth making. But the Surface Pro is also notable for the fact that it's dropped the numbering convention it's had until now, so it's not the Surface Pro 5, it's just the Surface Pro. Uh, also notable for the fact that on the outside it seems to have changed very little. The design has a, a couple of very minor tweaks here and there, but almost all the changes are on the inside with things like better pen support, uh, an LTE option, uh, the lower end models are fanless, um, the spec bumps, much better battery life. So those are some of the headlines. So it was an interesting uh, set of announcements. Again, interesting it was made in, in China rather than in the U.S. Aaron, what was your take on this announcement? You know, I w it, <clears throat> there were a few things that I thought were really telling in the Surface Pro changes. One is that the pen's not included anymore, mm -hmm. which Microsoft really had been pitching as sort of essential to the Surface experience, and now that's no longer the case. I suspect that's just because they found people are using it much more like a laptop that becomes a convenient tablet rather than a tablet-first um, right. uh, device for people. And so um, the fact that the pen's not included anymore, it surely comes from the fact that Microsoft has figured out that there are a lot of people who aren't going to terribly miss it. But it also kind of tackles, it sort of goes it goes against the idea that this is the ultimate hybrid because it appears that people aren't necessarily seeing it that way mm -hmm. or that anyway, the majority of people using it don't really care so much about the pen. But I think that's true for Apple with the iPad Pro as well. I mean, yeah. the, you know, the, the Apple Pencil is not something that most people have needed. I got one when I got my my iPad Pro, but I just haven't even used it very much. So. I thought that was really interesting. I yeah. <clears throat> I think the um, I, I I think it's nice to see it as a refinement. I think it's good that that there are more options out there. I I thought that the 
the the new hinge design to kind of mimic what the Surface Studio can do. So that this mm -hmm. is almost like a smaller version of the Surface Studio is curious to me. Um, mm -hmm. Because I, I don't know, I've seen pictures of it. I obviously haven't seen one of these in person. But I'm having a hard time understanding when you want that, uh, I guess, especially the key. They have a picture of the keyboard attached. Mm. Where but where the screen is laying totally flat and I'm just having a hard time imagining. That seems where odd, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, where that's the arrangement I want. But by the same token, you know, I don't know, who knows? We'll see how people use these things. But yeah. Um the inclusion of LTE was really cool. Um and I think that that will be really valuable to a lot of people. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, being a person who who's primarily in the Apple ecosystem, um, you know, I I, I I don't really resonate with the sort of fanboy approach of poo-pooing. It's something that other people do that's nice. I like it, actually, because it just enhances competition, pushes people along. You know, I think it makes everything better. And, I, you know, it, it seems like a good improvement. I'm still super skeptical of the fabric material. I forget mm. the name of it now. Alcantara. But, uh, yeah, Alcantara. But there was a YouTube video of a guy who was showing how it's been used by auto manufacturers and how it wears really poorly, especially against human skin. And I just think that's going to be a, a, a choice that Microsoft ends up regretting. Yeah, I, I think especially on the, the laptop, um, the Surface laptop they announced a little while ago. I mean, they've been using similar materials on these keyboards for the Surface for a while. Um, it doesn't seem to have been too much of an issue. People who have used those a lot say it doesn't really wear the way that some other pictures have shown. Uh, but yeah, just it feels like a risky choice, especially on the laptop, which is you know, a brand new product that's otherwise quite compelling looking. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think everything you said about the Surface Pro, I think you know the pen, I think Microsoft said only 30% of people were actually using it. And I think that's absolutely the rationale why Apple didn't include the pencil with the iPad Pro, because it's something that not everybody needs. And again, I, I was sent one along with the iPad Pro that I was sent to test. And basically never used it. I mean, I played around with it a bit at the beginning just to test it, but I'm, I'm not somebody who regularly draws. You know, if I do graphics, I tend to do them on the computer with a mouse and, you know, digital graphics and, you know, just end up with much better results. I'm not particularly artistic. So, you know, I, I don't really use a pencil for that. I type much faster than I write and much more legibly and searchably. And so I don't, you know, ever write with a pencil or a pen unless I'm taking very quick notes of something. Uh, so yeah, I just I don't use it. I imagine many other people also don't use it. So I think excluding it is is logical. Um, it obviously does eliminate one of those uh, theoretical differentiators for the Surface Pro, but I'm not sure how big a one it was to begin with. You know, on a device that's a thousand dollars plus in many cases, um, even though it starts slightly below that, you know, uh, spending an extra hundred dollars for a pencil for those that really need it is not going to be that big a deal. Um, but to my mind, the bigger change was that Microsoft stopped calling this thing the tablet. Um, it started right. calling it a laptop, which is slightly funny because they just actually released a laptop um, and because the keyboard doesn't come with it. So it's the funniest looking laptop you've ever seen when you get it out of the box, you know, unless you buy the keyboard too. But of course, that's what they're expecting most people to do. So, you know, even as it makes sense, I think, to, to remove the pen, it just highlights the fact that the fact that it doesn't come with a keyboard uh, makes it a really funny laptop. Um, you know, it's really a tablet that you need to buy a 
a keyboard for to turn it into a laptop, and yet that's how they're now positioning it. And I think that just reflects the fact that the tablet market as a market is kind of disappearing. I mean, there are certainly people who still buy tablets, but in the work environment, people are thinking of these things as laptops, even if they happen to look like tablets with keyboards attached. So, you know, that was a subtle shift, but an important one. Um, you now talked about it as most sort of the best laptop you can buy, basically, which, you know, again, is interesting given they've just introduced a product that's actually called a laptop. Um, but, you know, the Surface family is kind of evolving. Um, and yes, I, I absolutely agree with your thing about, you know, the the sort of Surface Studio mimicking seems really odd if you've got a keyboard attached. But if you don't, I think it makes perfect sense. And I think especially given the Surface Studio, I think when, when that announcement was made, there was a lot of people saying, wow, that's really cool. And then they heard the price and so on. And they said, wow, I'm never actually going to buy one of those. And so I think having a sort of studio mode on the Surface Pro is a nice way to say, hey, all that stuff that you really loved about that Surface Studio, but you were never going to buy, here it is, you know, and it's $1,000 instead of, you know, $2,500 or whatever that starts at. And, you know, by the way, you know, the dial works with it and, uh, you know, you can use the pen on it and the pen's now much better and so on and so forth. I think there's an interesting thing there where you're kind of borrowing from the sort of halo of the Surface Studio launch and saying, hey, you can use your Surface Pro that way too. But why you'd have a keyboard attached, I don't know. But, you know, without the keyboard, it certainly makes a lot more sense. Um, carry on. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it really, all this just comes down to the keyboard. I think the reason that they've stopped positioning it just as a tablet more as like a laptop is because keyboards are just too dang useful, right? Mm -hmm. I, especially physical ones. I think people just really like the, the orientation of the keyboard flat across your lap or on your desk and then the screen propped up so you can see it more easily that's just uh it's a format that just plain works i mean yeah. i was at an academic conference all week this week and uh you know there are a handful of people that were using their ipads and every single one uh, except for me had a keyboard attached right and they yeah. had it propped up on the keyboard and were taking notes and mm -hmm. there's one guy who even had an ipad pro the 12 inch one right. and uh which, by the way, has an extremely loud keyboard. <laughs> like I never, I, I don't think <laughs> I had funny. ever read or heard. I'm sure, that. I'm sure people yeah. have commented that the that these smart keyboards are loud. But holy moly, it was loud. But um, hmm. he was a nice guy, so I didn't hold it against him. But um, <laughs> but you know, I there's just something about a physical keyboard that there is not yet a better um, yeah input method uh, for input productivity. Method. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, agreed. I wonder if that keyboard's a bit like the MacBook Pro keyboards, the new ones, where it's not that they're loud per se, it's that you, you're used to typing with a certain amount of force for a squishier keyboard, and when you have a keyboard with much less key travel, it just ends up making a lot of noise if you hit it equally hard. That was certainly my experience. When I first got my MacBook Pro, I thought, wow, this is really loud. And then yeah. as I adjusted to it, I realized actually it's me that's loud in some ways because I'm still hitting it as hard as I would hit a keyboard with a lot more key travel. Um, Reminds and me I of, certainly haven't noticed that about the iPad Pro. We used to call one of my law school classmates Thunderfingers because <laughs> this guy, man, he you could hear him from across a really big room. Oh, so. yeah. Yeah, I used to work with somebody like that too. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to the next news item, which is uh, Liiko. Um, this is a Chinese company, entered the U.S. market late last year, huge fanfare, big investment, um, hired hundreds of people, uh, and really was trying to make a massive push into the U.S. market. And we've talked about them. We talked to them back when they launched, and we talked uh, again more recently when some of the 
rumors about things falling apart were starting to circulate. This week they announced that they are making significant layoffs, I think 70% of their US employees, uh, and also uh, that they're essentially retrenching to serve Chinese-speaking customers in the US market. And uh, you know, back, back when they launched, I think I talked about the fact that I was very skeptical that their model could succeed. It felt like uh, both their offering wasn't really very well thought out, especially from a content perspective, but also that they were just wholesale taking a bunch of stuff they'd tried in China that had worked there and trying to bring it to the US. And so, you know, I think the, the failure of the eco to, to do what it wanted to do here in the US is, is partly representative of um, a problem many Chinese companies have, which is just crossing that chasm from China to the US, frankly, and vice versa too, is just really tough because there are massive cultural differences. Things that work in one market tend not to work without major changes in the other. Um, so it's partly that, but partly also the eco-specific strategy just seemed really flawed right from the beginning. And, uh, you know, I was excited to have another player in the market. They look like they do interesting things uh, over time. And the big problem is they're just their parent company so financially constrained right now. They just can't afford to keep funding this aggressive but ultimately not very successful expansion in the U.S. And so they've had to retrench significantly. Um, and it just feels like what they've ended up doing now with targeting Chinese-speaking customers in the U.S. market is arguably would have been a great market entry strategy for them to start with. You know, quietly come into the market, target people that have probably already got some kind of connection with the brand, build up there, build the presence, and then slowly start building relationships to expand out of that market into the broader U.S. consumer market. And that would have been a very rational strategy, probably much more successful strategy, would have required a lot less upfront investment. Um, and yet, you know, they didn't go that way, and it just feels like the whole thing was kind of thawed from the beginning. Yeah, I if you I mean I I'll own up to this. I was a lot more optimistic about their prospects when we were first talking about them, um, and it, you know I agree. It felt like a flailing market strategy rather than a mm. deliberate one. I'm not sure that I, I I'm not, I'm still not completely skeptical of the idea that you can buy your way into the U.S. market. Um, I I just think you have to do it in a much more deliberate and methodical way. Mm. Um, rather than sort of just, you know, there was a lot of flash to the way they entered yeah. and, and not nearly enough substance. Um, and the funny thing is, is they seemed like a company who could have entered with a lot of substance had they just sort of planned better. I, I think they've, they've done interesting products. They've done products that people really like. I, I don't think there's about, you know, when it comes to a lot of their products, I don't think there's anything that's inherently, um, that's inherently Chinese versus American that would have driven Americans away. Um, right. I, I think, for example, in wearables, they could have carved out a space um, that would have been interesting to, by virtue of being lower cost. Um, right. Uh, but, you know, in all this, it just seems like um, it, it, it seems like they just they were hoping that the that the flash and the pizzazz was what is all that it would take to get people to buy these things and right. i think if you're going to enter the u.s market with a lot of money and a huge push i think the reality is you have to enter as a low cost um but but perceived as quality alternative right you know the sort of thing that would turn up in walmart stores um as as you know a brand with maybe a special kiosk or some special signage you know where the, your message mm -hmm. was hey here's low cost but quality kind of an idea here's a new brand to try that's low cost but quality i think that's i think that kind of a strategy could work and would be really expensive up front but could 
but could still be successful. And, you know, there was really no cohesiveness to the way they were trying to approach the market in terms of their advertising or anything like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's... It's it's a fascinating case study in in you know failure ultimately um, and all the things that can contribute to it. But there were so many contributors to this particular failure. You can't pin it on any one thing. But yeah, excess of hubris, failure to adapt to local circumstances. Um, you know, not really thinking through retail and distribution channels. You know, going in too hard. You know, before we'd really built up a, a brand and a reputation. I mean, so many things went wrong. Um, and you know it's a, it's a great shame and lots of people are going to lose their jobs as a result of it but uh, yeah. you know lots of cautionary tale there for, um, for other companies trying to enter the US market or the consumer electronics market in general they didn't have um, an identity and then they needed no. that no and I think you know one, one of the things that went wrong for them was that they were uh, acquiring Vizio which is a big known TV brand in, in the US which could have kind of formed the core of a strategy here they could have used the Vizio brand and so on but ultimately that deal fell through and so um, you know even that which could have helped didn't happen and so yeah nothing really went right for them here all right well let's move on to our third news topic which is um, comments from Google executives about how uh, the Google Assistant and Google Home will be monetized and you know, you might say, well, they're going to sell the Google Home, right? 130 bucks a pop, you know. And I think that's what a lot of consumers are thinking too, because that's obviously the model with Amazon Echo: is you buy the device, and that's how it's monetized, you know. And Amazon may be making a loss on each one that it sells, but it's it's obviously benefiting its ecosystem, benefiting uh, e-commerce because you can order stuff through it, and so on. And so, I think from an Amazon perspective, consumers sort of feel like they've paid for it, and it's kind of like Prime, where Amazon's perhaps subsidizing some elements of it, but they're going to get more than their money back over time. It's sort of a mutually beneficial relationship. I think with Google, the assumption many consumers are making is, well, this is a paid Google product, so this isn't one of those ones that's going to be supported by advertising. And yet these comments this week suggested that uh, e-commerce and then advertising are going to be the model for monetizing the Assistant and Google Home. And the big question, of course, with the voice side of things is, you know, how do you serve up ads in a way that isn't enormously annoying or intrusive? Um, and the second question is, if people feel like they've bought a device and therefore paid for it, and that's the business model, is it a bit of a bait and switch afterwards to then say, oh, by the way, we're going to serve up ads to you as well? I don't know. What did you think about that, Aaron? Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think the the biggest problem they have is um, the ability for advertising to interrupt and how really with Assistant they can't advertise except through interruption. Um, <clears throat> which is not how Google built its ad business um, to begin with, because you know they built they built their ad business on the web. What's nice about the web is that you can advertise without having to necessarily jam yourself in front of the content that people want. Um, in fact, those are the worst web web based ads, right? Are the ones that like that have pop ups or or right. interstitials or other things that get in your way. Um, and there's a lot of advertising, you know, integrating ads into a search result, for example, doesn't interrupt my searching. Um, the problem with a voice only platform is you have no choice but to interrupt with advertising. Like there's, right. th- there's no, there's no other option. It's and linear, although, right. So you have to get through the ad to get to the content. Exactly. You yeah, exactly. Both at the same time in the way that you do on a web page. Yeah. And, and the problem is, you know, people sort of put up with that with television for a really long time. And now it's harder to get away with 
Um, uh, the, it's also sort of expected as part of the social contract that when you watch video, there's going to be an ad at some point. But even then, it can be really annoying. And, uh, and, and there's some ad experiments in video uh, regarding interruption that I think either have failed badly or will. Like the way Facebook lately has been running ads mid-video. So you sort of get sucked into the first minute of a video on Facebook and then, and then, the, ad, and then the ad rolls. And uh, I, I just think I, I've, I've never continued watching a video yet on Facebook where that's happened because the mm -hmm. ad completely and immediately turns me off. And I think this is what a voice experience is going to be like. Interruption, I think part of the reason it works with, with television is because you're watching a 22 to 25 minute show and you're getting, you know, three to four minutes of advertising throughout that. Um, and even then, if you've T voted or whatever, you fast forward or find ways to skip. Um, the interactions with Google Assistant are measured in seconds, not minutes. And uh, But advertising to be meaningful has got to last longer as a ratio. And I just have a hard time imagining what that, how that ad is going to work, right? right? So that, so I, I mean, so, you know, the example in the Recode article that you cited from the Tech Narrative site, you know, talked about how, you know, today I can say, okay, Google, where's the nearest CVS? And then it, and then it's going to tell me, right? How do you, that's a, such a brief interaction and yet it's typical of what these voice assistants are supposed to be able to manage. Mm. How do you cram an ad into that? Right. How do you, you know, how do you cram? Mm. I mean, is it 10 seconds? Is it 20? Does it come at the beginning or the middle of the end? You know, it, does the assistant respond and say, I'm going to tell you where one is, Aaron, but you really ought to think about Walgreens first. Right. right. I mean, exactly. Like, yeah. I just, I'm having a hard time imagining in a scenario in which the interruption won't just be seen as a major inconvenience. And it sounds like Google mm -hmm. hasn't figured this out either in the way that they're talking yeah, about this doesn't. right now is that there's, there's no, they say there's no urgency to them monetizing mm -hmm. this through advertising, <laughs> which is really just another way of their saying, we haven't figured it out yet. Right. Because right. if they'd figured it out, then there would be plenty of urgency because there'd be money to be made. But I right. don't think they're there. Yeah, no, I mean, I think also, I think that they're, they're trying to avoid putting people off, frankly. And I think, you know, that's part of where the bait and switch thing comes in because it, this hasn't been part of the system from the beginning. You know, when they, they ran that Beauty and the Beast promotion a few weeks back yeah. and, and got really loud pushback from, from consumers about that, you know, I think that took them by surprise a little bit. It shouldn't have, but it did. Um, and I think they're now a lot more cautious about that. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, whenever they finally do introduce ads onto Google Home and the Google Assistant, that's not still going to cause a massive problem. But in fact, it may just make it worse because you've got a much bigger base that you're starting to tick off with, with ads. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's really not obvious. I mean, even if I say, where's the nearest pharmacy, even if I don't say, you know, where's the nearest CVS, you're going to give me a list. Well, how in that list are you going to say, well, this one got paid for, you know, because... One of the things that's happened over time on Google.com is that, A, there have been far more ads over time in, in more places, but also the designation of which, which of those results are ads has become subtler and subtler. There's sort of shading and, and there's sort of little tag that says this is an ad or sponsored or whatever. has got smaller and more subtle. Um, and you can't be subtle in voice. You know, you kind of... You know, you can't sort of read out all the, all of the you know, there's no equivalent of fine print. There's no, you know, equivalent of subtle shading. You know, everything's the same. So, you know, unless you go, okay, here's a listing of local pharmacies, CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid, you know, you kind of do you read right. one louder than the others or, you know, like, <laughs> you know, this one's brought to you by our sponsor. You know, just, it's just really not obvious how that will work without being 
you know, really obvious and and interruptive and and frustrating to the user at some point. So, um, you know, it, it's really worth thinking through. I think you know exactly how that could work. And as you say, I suspect Google hasn't figured that out yet. I think you know, having said all of this, we've been mostly focused on the voice side of things. And of course, the assistant now isn't just voice; it's uh, on smartphones, and, and you can type to it and get um, visual responses and so on. There, of course, it'll make a lot more sense and, and sure. operate much more like a traditional Google search. And it could be that you know that's the main way that this ends up working. It could be also that Google ultimately brings out an equivalent of the Echo Show with a screen, and therefore you know the advertising only shows up when you're you know, asking things that can be responded to in a visual way, and that the ads show up there. So it's possible that it will end up being very limited rather than broad through the voice interface. But yeah, certainly not something I'm looking forward to as somebody who actually has a, a Google Home uh, and uses it a fair amount. Right. Well, and the, the type version of this, the, the on-screen version of this is really just a smarter version of Google search. I mean, right. it's, it's an evolution of that. It's not, it, it's baking assistant features into Google search, which is already a pretty fundamental, you know, platform for which people are to which people are pretty accustomed to getting advertising on works. This is why yeah. I think Assistant is a more is a more problematic uh, effort on Google's side than say on Amazon's or Apple's. I think there's mm. there are more obvious and immediate paths to revenue for those companies because they're essentially saying, buy into this ecosystem, pay us for our hardware. That's a little less obvious with Amazon than it is with Apple. I think for Apple, a device like this makes ultimate sense. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to Google who, I mean, really, if we're, if we're, if I I think what this really is, is this is like the Google home, I think is a moonshot within Google, right? Rather than sort of way out there moonshots like self-driving cars. I think this is internally something of a moonshot because they don't know what's going to, I just don't think they know how this is going to turn into revenue for them. Right. They, they have yeah. ideas and they're experimenting and there's a lot of credit to that approach. Um, but it's not nearly as obvious as a company like Apple that's making money off of selling hardware. Right. Absolutely. Agreed. Well, speaking of Apple, that's our last news item is about Apple. And this is about uh, Apple News hiring its first editor-in-chief. And of course, it's a fundamentally a curated platform today rather than a created platform on Apple's part. This is third-party news that gets fed into the Apple News interface and the app and so on and then consumed by iPhone and iPad owners. Um, so, you know, it does have editors, but those editors are doing curation, as I say, at the moment and not creating any content really today. Um, there was some sort of slightly tighter curation that went on during the election, uh, especially towards the end of the election last year here in the U.S., uh, but for the most, for the Apple Store wasn't creating any of the content itself. And so the big question is, why do you need an editor-in-chief, and especially somebody who's coming from the magazine world? Uh, and uh, Lauren Kern, who they've hired, is a former executive editor at New York Magazine. Um, and so, yeah, interesting question about you know why you need an editor-in-chief. Certainly an indication about Apple's seriousness about Apple News at this point and um, you know the fact that it, it continues to invest in it and wants to continue to evolve it. Uh, I suspect one of the things we'll see at WWDC this year is uh, subscriptions going uh, more open rather than just being restricted to a few publications um, so that there are other ways to monetize beyond advertising. Um, something I'm looking forward to. It's something, you know, tech narratives is available in a very limited way on uh, Apple News today. And the main reason is just I can't charge for it there. So it's only the free posts that are going there right now. But I'd love to have a subscription model there. And I've had people tell me they'd be happy to pay for it that way. So. 
Um, you know, I, I'm looking forward to them expanding it in that way. But Aaron, what was your take? Any thoughts about why Apple might be doing this right now? I just think it's because they're going to be taking it more seriously. It's going to take more of a marketing push on their part. I think Apple News certainly has a core group of users that turn to it by default. You know, if they pick up their iPad because they're bored and need something to read, I think there are a lot of people who open up Apple News to get to, to you know, to find things to read. And, 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 and there have been a lot of other companies who have tried this sort of a thing, but I think... Um, it definitely seems like Apple's taking more seriously. They have a ton going in their favor. I, I think what's what's missing for them, now that they've hired an editor-in-chief and it appears there's going to be some strategy around the kind of content that they gather and push and and the kind of um, uh, uh, additional business models and resources they offer to publishers, like a subscription model, I think the next thing that needs to happen is they need a marketing push to make this another reason to get uh, an iPad or an iPhone. Right, that you get sort of this really well-crafted news experience every morning that's better than you can find anywhere else. You know, I think about their primary competition. I think the the most notable one is something like Flipboard. Right. Um, uh, you know, there's a um, there's a space there. People are using these these sort of news platforms to to gather everything into one spot. You know, it's 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 essentially a mature and more controlled and more crafted version of RSS, and mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot there's a lot to that. So, um, you know, I I don't know. I I I, I, it, I was a skeptic of Apple News from the beginning because Apple has tried things like this that are sort of like little side projects that end up atrophying because they're not getting much attention. So hiring editor-in-chief tells me that Apple's going to be giving it more of a push, and I suspect there's going to be some marketing coming with it too. Yeah, yeah. So I think one other interesting model that would be interesting for them to pursue, which would fit with all of this, is if Apple creates a, a sort of bundle subscription. So rather than just allowing right. individual publications to charge you know, $20 a month to subscribe to their publication, you sort of create a $30 a month all you can eat subscription that covers a number of top publications. Um, it's a model that obviously exists elsewhere. Cable TV works that way, arguably today, and a lot of other places there are similar subscription models. Um, so this would be, you know, a change from obviously the way that Apple News has worked so far, a change from the way most news publications have worked so far. And if you were to do that, then trying to figure out the right mix of those elements and how to charge for it and promote it and so on would be really important. And there, again, I guess an editor-in-chief with experience in the magazine world might be useful. So that's another possibility, I think. Yeah, and that strategy fits right in with their services push to build up the right. services business. And it, it, news is a, is a business and still, yeah. s- still potentially profitable despite <laughs> all of the carnage mm. right, of the last decade in, yeah. in, in newspapers and magazines. There's still yeah. there's still money to be made there. Yeah, and especially if you're Apple and you're really just taking account right. on other people's revenue. You know, Apple doesn't have any of the costs associated with it other than the hosting and so on. Um, so, you know, it could be, could be quite profitable as the App Store already is very profitable for them. So be interesting to watch that. All right, well, let's wrap up this episode here. Um, so hopefully that was useful, interesting for you. As ever, we'll have links in the show notes and on the website to uh, the, the Tech Narratives pieces covering some of this news. Um, and uh, we'll be with you again next week when hopefully there will be more and bigger news and we'll be back hopefully with a question of the week episode as well as a news roundup so thanks for being with us as always and we'll talk to you again next week bye-bye